everybody, welcome to another edition of Blast Points Presents, and this is a really great one. Yeah, we have uh, our friend and the fifth Beatle of Blast Points, Tom Spina, and his incredible conversation with the even more incredible Phil Tippett. Phil Tippett is an absolute legend, and this conversation you're about to hear is so good. Tom and Phil are talking about like creativity and inspiration, coming up with the Tauntaun designs. They touch on the human Jabba controversy, which pay attention to that part because you can tell Tom really wants to get into talking about what was going on with human Jabba and Phil just kind of moves past it. (laughs) There's even like Howard the Duck and Starship Troopers talk in here, which is speaking our language. And of course, they talk about Max Rebo. And this is all kind of going around the incredible Regal Robot Tauntaun Phil Tippett concept maquette heads. And just any chance you get to talk to Phil Tippett is a gift, right? Tauntaun. Which is kind of the amazing thing, like hearing this conversation too. Like, not only is Tom Spina the good mastermind of Regal Robot and Tom Spina Designs, not only is he an incredible guitar player and super fan of Van Halen and Extreme. But he's really good at interviewing. And Phil Tippett is not like the easiest person to talk to. And uh, this is just a great, great, great conversation. Yeah, so let's get into it. You seem to be everywhere right now. Uh, every time I go online, when I go on my Amazon Prime, when I'm looking at, uh, at books, there's Mad Dreams and Monsters movie, the Mad Dreams and Monsters book, Mad God film, uh, new studio ventures in Canada. Am I missing anything? God, I don't know. I mean, there's so many things going on. I, you know, I just kind of wait for people to tell me what I need to do. <laughs> they just push you in the right direction. Yeah, I got interviews with Japan this afternoon. It's <laughs> opening in Japan soon. Oh, that's outstanding. Oh, God. Yeah, so aside from the promotional side of it, the making of the stuff side of it, would you consider yourself one of these people, like, if no one paid you, you'd just be doing the same thing? Uh, back in the day. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, as a hobby... You know, but I don't know what else I would have done. You know, probably sell pizzas or shoes. <laughs> um, I, there's nothing wrong with pizza. I'm from New York, so I'm I'm totally all right with that. But yeah, it is. It's a little hard to picture you. You know, at a shoe store. I don't know. No, I was very lucky. Yeah. You know, it was. Uh, nobody else was doing that stuff. And so it was very, you know, I didn't worry about work at all. You know, I would wait when a gig was over. I just wait, um, you know, for the phone to ring. And I just got used to and, and preferred doing that when I was working in commercials because I could work and uh, take a bunch of time off and then dill around with my own stuff and wait for the phone to ring. And then after... Uh, Star Wars, it was pretty much the same thing. It was just like, um, okay. Well, I mean, it was like, yeah. Um, after Star Wars, whatever it was, uh, 
couple years or whatever, I was doing commercials. And then after Empire, it was just everything was back to back. It was uh, Dragon Slayer and Jedi. And then I took a break and made Prehistoric Beasts. And then whatever happened next. Right. Somewhere RoboCop happened. You know, it's just, yeah, it feels like it's been pretty nonstop for you since then. Um, yeah, really. <laughs> uh, which is, I, you know, you, you, you called it lucky. I think you know, obviously there's there's a degree of the luck you made yourself with this stuff, but um, certainly in this industry, not everybody gets that. So, uh, so that's that's definitely well, a testament. Be in the right place at the right time and work with a bunch of eight hundred pound gorilla directors. So. Um, yeah. But again, it was because, you know, hardly anybody was doing this stuff and nobody really knew, you know, how to how to get through a pre-production, production and post-production, you know. Yeah. That, that's a skill that you learn, you know, over time. One of the things that jumped out at me in the... Um, so if anybody has Amazon Prime, they should immediately go and look at... Uh, the Mad Dreams and Monsters documentary movie, um, which was just outstanding. Um, did you guys, was that self-produced or was that somebody else that came in and did that? Uh, no, it was on Alexander Ponset and uh, uh, Jules Pinso. They were, they were French uh, on their ticket. And, um, and so they would come uh, for a number of years and stay at my house. And um, the, f- the first time they came, they were going to just look for whatever I had. And I told them there's a bunch of boxes up in the attic with cobwebs and dust. And I have no idea what's in them. But, you know, I didn't throw anything away ever. You know? And so, uh, you know, there's everything up there. Yeah. You know, Polaroid production reports and notes on how I made, you know, walkers and tauntauns move and, you know, um, and all that stuff so in that giant book. I, I love, yeah, I know when we were doing the hollow chest, you pulled out the scrapbook and, or sent us photos from the scrapbook at some point. Um, and, and it was extremely helpful on some of the stuff for us, you know, things that, that Lucasfilm doesn't even have, um, what what drives that? Is it just what drives the not throwing anything out? Is that uh, I mean, yeah? Where does that come from for you? Well, you know, I just just throw things in boxes and put them up in the attic. And uh, but you know, a lot of a lot of artists do that. Yeah. You know, is they just keep everything for no good reason, right? You know? And then you know. Just totally forget about it. Well, because you're immediately on to the next gig, you're on to the next creation, you're figuring out how to make the next thing that you're going to put in a box and throw in the attic. Yeah. In your, uh, the, the cottage, uh, do you, what, what do you call that space? You, you have, so for anybody that hasn't seen, there's, you know, what, you got like the, the sort of cottage behind the house there that's your like, that uh, I guess nowadays people would call it a man cave. I don't even know. Like what's? No, it's just the, the cottage. And during Mad God, I used it to um, you know kind of do experiments on the weekends hmm. if I wasn't shooting. 
And then a strange thing happened uh, when Mad God premiered at um, Carno. Um, uh, around that time, I just lost interest in making anything with my hands anymore. And um, so I turned the cottage into a painting studio for Jules, my wife. And um, and now I just have like a little garret and I, you know, kind of changed my attack, you know, to writing material. Mm. So I've been doing that for like 20 years. And again, it's, a, you know, an accumulated skill, you know, so yeah. I'm strong with ideas, but, um, you know, it, it just take, takes me a long time to get what it takes to write. Not that it's any good, but, um, I mean, writing is its own very unique creative outlet, uh, to at least to the other stuff. Um, do you still? I, I know you had said something in the uh, in the thing that that really jumped out at me. They asked you, you know, if all the stuff in the room on the walls and and the shelves and everything, all the artifacts you had collected, were for inspiration, and you said it was more like ambience and things talk to you. Um, exactly. Yeah. Do you feel that with writing as well? Just like being absorbed in that sort of space, those things just seep into you and and you know work their way out through your fingers as you go. You know, I find the process very easy. You know, I'm like kind of channeling Stephen King's because I can I can visualize things and I just see the movie in my mind. You know mm. and. You know, it's just a matter of getting behind the mule and, you know, doing it. Currently, you know, I wrote everything out in in words, so now I've got to translate that back into the final draft. So that's a slog. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. When it comes to, you know, you talk about being able to see this stuff, and that's, I mean, yeah, it's almost like you've got to just tune, tune your own brain into letting it, tell that story and you, you know, trying to set that other part of yourself aside to watch it almost, uh, and not, well, not intentionally steer it. It's just like anything else with me. You know, I'm like, if I'm designing a creature, you know, it's just like, you know, uh, could be this, it could be that, you know, mm-hmm. nothing's precious and, you know, you just do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's- you know, there's, you know, I, uh, you know, pretty much what I, I do is like, uh, you know, I just follow the, the vision. You know, I can just see things in my mind and then um, just do it. it. It's the equivalent of, you know, if you look at uh, interviews with Bach and Beethoven and Mozart mm-hmm. and ask how they do their music, they just say they just transcribe it, you know. Right. And it's literally that. Yeah. Yeah, you don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's just there. You're just, you know, putting it out. It's just letting it free. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, the other thing that happened um, when I finished Mad God was during that whole process, I dreamt prolifically. Mm. And um, just, I could just, I would get up and just go down. I could write, like, you know, and when Mad God finished, I stopped dreaming. Oh, wow. 
And, um, but I found it very, well, it was also, let's see, who did, um, Neil Gaiman, I was just reading an article with him um, about the Sandman, and the same thing happened to him. He just cramped, you know, prolifically while he was doing the Sandman, and when he was done, it stopped. Do you think that's just that your brain was going because it knew it was working on something, and it was just working this stuff out for you while you were sleeping, and then once once you knew it was done, it was like, I could take a break. I didn't use anything really, you know, verbatim from the dreams. Mm. You know, they were just normal, weird dreams. I, what I did find was after I'd been doing it for a couple of months and would go back in, I found that there was actually a structure lurking in the dreams. And there would be, you know, in like three parts, you know, uh, there would be a you know, beginning, middle, and end. And the beginning would pose a problem. The middle was kind of like the unconscious of the unconscious, you know, <laughs> processing it. Right. And the, at the end, it was, you know, probably 50% of the time a, re- a resolution. Wow. You know, we, um, certainly indicates to me that, you know, storytelling is, you know, innate in our DNA. Right. Yeah, dreaming in three acts. That's excellent. Well, yeah. (laughs) Um, When, you know, you're talking about seeing stuff and you you talk, you started to drift into, you know, designing a creature. And I think that's actually perfect for some of the stuff we want to talk about. But, um, you know, I, I know from when I sculpt stuff, there are times where I go in and I have a really clear picture in my mind of what I want this thing to be. Other times I'll have a little bit of a thing. And then sometimes I just start and the clay just sort of takes you somewhere. Um, do you, do you have all three of those? Do you always have something in mind when you start? You know, what's, yeah. How does it usually flow for you? Well, it depends on what I'm doing. You know, it's like, you know, George wanted a, what they were calling it at the time, a snow lizard, you mm. know, for the Tom-Tom. And so right. like, oh, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. <laughs> and so I did, um, you know, a, a couple of afternoons, I, I, you know, did a bunch of, you know, it could be this, it could be that, you know, I wasn't tied to anything. Right. And, you know, gave George a lot to... Um, you know, uh, choose from hmm. as a direction, which you really appreciated. And then when, you know, uh, and then I made a, a maquette of the Tom Tom, yeah. which we like to restore. So, yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> um, they were actually up at the archives again, just recently doing more scanning on, on some of those old maquettes. Um, the, not that Tauntaun, but, but a bunch more of the, the Jedi maquettes. Um, it's been a fascinating process. I actually have to thank you. You, you know, between you and, and uh, Ken and Kirk and, and even uh, Judy and Tom Sanamon and Dave Carson, like everybody has really pitched into figuring out who sculpted each of these things. Uh, and it's been like this great little archaeological project to sink my teeth into figuring out, you know, wh- where did all of these come from? Um, on, on those tauntauns. So, uh, you're talking about the first sort of draft of what we came to know as the final Tauntaun, sort of 
uh, a little smaller than the final final draft, which you did, which we offer yeah. the replica it's of. Very tiny. It's just a sketch. Yeah. Um, and so George saw that and just said, oh, yeah. And that's what subsequently I, I found that George was much more inclined to pretty much immediately go for a maquette. Mm. You know, uh, the 2D stuff that, you know, Ralph and Joe and Nilo would do, you know, that whole thing kind of turns into a, well, what about this tale and that tale? And, you know, um, uh, but with the maquette, you know, uh, George, you know, could see it, you know, and I've got um, to some degree autism, so I can see things in my mind, you know, and, um, you know, turn them around and, um, you know, so I can kind of see them volumetrically sometimes. I mean, the day job when I'm supposed to do like um, a dragon, you know, if there's something in the script, then it's very, that's a target. Um, you know, and then other things like, you know, Job of the Hut, you know, we were all kind of at a stalemate. And, um, and then somehow I came up with the design, and it's like you said, you know, you just start. Yeah. And it takes you, uh, you know, you ride the wild elephant. <laughs> right. The elephant takes you where it wants to go. Yeah. It really does happen, too. It's, it's um, and, and it's sometimes, I, I liken it to playing music. Um, I, I play guitar forever, and I feel like there's times where you play the guitar, and then there's times where the guitar just sort of plays, and you're along for the ride. Um, and, and that's it. You get into the right creative space, you get you know, started and you're emotionally set for it and, and available to it. And then it's just, yeah, you put your hands in it and it sort of tells you where it wants to go. Um, yeah, oh, I call it zone. For sure. Yeah. Do you think, uh, so on, uh, to, to get specific to the Tauntaun, so some of those early sketches you did before we're talking the, the full body, these four busts that we've got going when you're art directing a project or something, you ask someone for four looks on something and you get, you know, four of basically the same thing they've already shown you. (laughs) Um, Whereas these are four really drastically different things. Uh, Is there a a discipline to, you know, forcing yourself to, to, to go that broad, to, to get outside of the box like that? It's it's literally, I'm not committed to anything. You know, it, it could be this, it could be that. Right. You know, um, you know, you just pull these things out of your ass, and, you know, <laughs> let let the boss figure out which turd he wants. <laughs> uh, I need to make a bumper sticker of that. Uh, is there is there a um, on some of these, I've noticed that they're sculpted asymmetrically as well. Like you'll have, there's a couple of these that have two different faces. If you look at them on the left and the right, is that a trick you've, you've done a lot? Yeah. Well, it's economizing, yeah. you know, it's, it's just giving, um, you know, the director, you know, more choices. Hmm. And I, I always, of course, you know, like, like many people, um, 
do it, to, uh, you know, uh, you know, really push the asymmetry of the face. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I mean, it see, it seems like for you, I think you said earlier, you know, nothing's precious when you're going. And I think maybe the ability to do that, to be able to say that and commit to it, uh, leads to a more organic, asymmetrical end result. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like being a kid and playing, you know, with your army man, you know, and so it's like, oh, it's fun, you know, you know, what, what, what will I see next? What's, what will I transcribe from God, you know? Yeah. The mad God, as it were. You talked about George being, it almost sounds like you're manipulating him with the maquettes. You found him quicker to approve stuff if it was a, if it was a maquette versus a sketch for yourself. Do you find yourself gravitating towards three-dimensional concept work uh, in terms of creating it? Do you prefer that over sketching stuff just in general? I'm a far better sculptor designer than I am, you know, two-dimensional. I kind of, you know, uh, in in terms of drawing, I kind of got to this point where that was all I needed to do for what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of those drawings, and I have hundreds upon hundreds of drawings, you know, that I've saved. Mm-hmm. And uh, just going back even to, like, when I was, like, five years old, you know. Oh, wow. They were, they were like, or whatever, you know, six, eight. No, these are, like, really primitive you know, and there were like spaceships and deep sea divers and knights and a lot of red blood. Naturally. Giant squids were a big thing for me. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I, I saved all that stuff. You know, I don't know how many times I've moved in my life, but somehow I kept the stuff. And it's currently being archived at. Uh, to the studio so and it's going to take about a year to do it because there's so much stuff that's amazing i bet people would love to see you know some of the early bloody phil tippett (laughs) giant squid art (laughs) yeah once we uh once we get it archived uh i would like to you know uh do a book that's just the picture book Mm. you know with no dialogue so I'll, i'll you know, whenever we get our ship together, you know, I'll see if uh, Alexander and Jill's want to collaborate on something. That's fine, man. When you're doing maquette work for a movie, do you ever get attached to a particular design? Uh, or, you know, let's say you present five looks to a director and you have the one you really want to get it, but the director picks a different one. Um, does Does that stay with you afterwards or is it just nope that's not what he wants all right moving on uh no i mean i think uh java was a good you know uh example was the the first one i did was as george said uh looked too much like Ming Ming the merciless Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, it had like four arms and sat in a chair yeah been a hell of a thing yeah and then the other one I did was closer in configuration to Jabba, but it had like a big scarred up face that ooze was coming out of. And George goes, that's too horrible. <laughs> and and we, we all, you know, Joe and Ralph and Nilo and I you know, hit a wall 
And um, so I asked George if there was an actor that um, he would cast for this. And he said, uh, Sydney Greenstreet. And that's what illuminated my mind. Mm. You know, he was like, okay, now I have the character. Now, now I can just let go and, and find the character in the clay. Right. And then the, the creatureness of him just oozes out of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, you know, the, the maquettes for George were, um, you know, he could hold them in his hand. He could turn them. He could see angles. Mm-hmm. So it was a filmmaker, you know, seeing a thing, you know, in light mm-hmm. as opposed to the you know, abstraction of a 2D image. Right. And the that final Jabba maquette has such great attitude. Just his pose, his, the the sense of weight of it all. The 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 hands crossed on his on his belly, resting on the belly, and just there's it, there's a ton of attitude that comes through that. That I guess you could get in a two D picture, but it really does feel like you know in three D you're 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 uh, better showcasing all those aspects of it. Yeah, I, I like, you know, what I came up with better than what was in the movie, you know, because it was like, you know, George ended up, you know, keeping the character, but you know, kind of turned it into a frog, you know, and it, it was green and had frog hands and all that, so it didn't have the ability to, and I don't know, I mean, at that point, you know, I, I had let the thing go and went over to Stuart. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very likely that a lot of the decisions that they had made at that time were very practical. I'm sure. Oh. It, it does. But, you know, I, I, I thought of Java as a human, you mm. know, not not a, a creature, but it was like, what are they called in June, like the spice mer- merchants? Right. Like people, you know, or a yeah. lot a lot of um, Jack Vance's characters, you know, the the writer are uh, are um, humans that mm. just had evolved away from us. You know, it, it's funny. You know, I I think well, you know, even you go back to their the first Star Wars film and they shot it with a human as Jabba, and there's. There's always some back and forth of if George really intended for that to have stop motion over top of it someday or something like well, that. He talked about it, yeah, you know, but it was just you know a lot of that stuff had to be cut. Was he just didn't have the money, you know, or, or the time to yeah. do it? It didn't feel like it was shot for you know matting something into it. It felt like there were a lot of choices in how they shot it that that would have been really challenging back then, let alone now. Uh, oh, God, I, yeah. I don't know that the technology was such. I mean, it was, but it would have been a big deal yeah. to, to do that. I, I think there was a, a version of, or I just stuck it on, that Java had a belt. Okay. I, is that something that uh, maybe Ken Ralston did for a T-shirt or something? Because that sounds familiar, like Jabba with a fez on. You know, I I don't recall. I see it in my mind's eye. Yeah. Is it, you know that maybe I didn't even you know I had it as an attachment. You know, right. Was, you know, 
you can have it with the Fez. You can have it without <laughs> a Fez. Uh, um, the, going into some of the other ones, uh, you know, we, we've talked about the, the sort of first draft mini Tauntaun. We have your final draft of the Tauntaun, which you luckily had kept the molds. <laughs> thanks, thanks for being a hoarder. Um, and so that we've been offering folks. We still have about, I think it's about 80% sold through. So maybe there's, there's under 50 of them left. If anybody who's listening is interested, uh, they can go to regalrobot.com and go buy one. And it's got Phil's signature and it's right out of the original mold and really is one of my favorite sculpts. Um, there's, there's something, um, I'm, I'm turning and looking cause I've got one over my shoulder here and it's, uh, it, I, I don't know why. And, and I remember, you know, we were at your place restoring, uh, the, the dragon slayer puppet, uh, me and Pat were over there and I just, you know, saw it up in the rafters, just the casting. And it's just like, uh, when you said you still had the mold, it really, you know, kind of blew my mind actually. Yeah, well, once I had the mold, you know, I, um, that was just to sign off, you know, and um, that particular one, um, you know, had a really different kind of, a, it was more like a warthog end. You know? mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and I thought that would be fun, but... Uh, George and Kirchner felt that it should have a tail, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, I couldn't disagree. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I, I generally would go for weird. Right. And, and then George would want to make things more uh, conventional. Right. You know? So, uh, I mean, that, that happened a lot. Mm. Uh, and he had a problem with a lot of the stuff that I did, which was, you know, um, the faces were unclear. Mm. And, and, and that's something, you know, I mean, I would always suggest to whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. I mean, the initial Howard the Duck creature was was very um, H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. You know, kind of a buggy thing. Mm-hmm. And George just said, hey, you know, make something, you know, with eyes that you can see. And, uh, you know, uh, and that's so, you know, go like, okay, and, and do that. I feel like uh, the, the final on that Howard the Duck creature is still pretty out there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I, yeah, actually, that, that's one of the ones I was most happy with, you know, just because of that reason. Yeah. Or what, it was like, uh, do, do what you want. Yeah. It was, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, and it's it's maybe scarier because it's a bit abstract. Um, you know, it just, it doesn't, you don't know what part of it could hurt you. It's just sort of all over the place. Yeah, that was our intention with Starship Troopers. Mm. You know, particularly the first thing we see with the arachnid yeah. soldiers. You know, he really wanted to have that nightmare feeling yeah. where at first you don't I thought you kind of gave it away too early when it killed the cow mm. but um, you know in the scenes where they first see the bugs amassing uh, uh, you know that was um, on, I think it was Klein Death 
that, um, uh, you know, you just, you, you're, it's at night and they're dark and you just go, and there's a lot of them. You just go like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? and, it, it, and it's the same kind of, you know, thing that, um, you know, uh, Geiger had in mm. the Eagles. You know, it was just like, your mind takes, you know, a bit to, you know, put all the pieces together. And and so your unconscious is like kind of bubbling. Right. There, yeah. Which is where you want it, you know, for right. for a nightmare image. Yeah. Yeah, let, let people make it even worse in their minds. Yeah. Which, you know, just anyway, a field full of giant arachnids sounds pretty terrifying to me just in the first place. I don't, I don't do well with spiders. <laughs> troopers, uh, you know, when we were shooting that stuff at night, I walked out to, you know, take a pee. And uh, I was standing there peeing. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this black thing, about three feet high, comes towards me. I mean, it's it, it's coming at me, and it's just like I'm running away, trying to stop being and put my dick back in my pants to, to run away. And I got I got uh, you know some distance on the thing, and what it was was like a, a big black garbage bag <laughs> filled up with wind. especially you know in that scenario <laughs> it's like you're at your most vulnerable you know you could kind of hear it as the wind was gently blowing it you know it's not this rustling kind right. of you know, sound that was attached to it which made it worse I, I feel like that's just an amazing jump scare for uh for a movie uh, you know, if you're next time you sit down to write, there's your there's your your you know your misdirect jump scare, and then the guy turns around after he's all zipped up, and then gets eaten by the real monster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's your movie. All right. <laughs> I'll give you credit. Um, we also have the the Max Rebo you did. Uh, which you know was also like like a lot of these scanned off the real prop in the archives, and there's uh, I think that edition is also about seventy five percent sold through. If anybody is looking for one of those, um, and what's neat about him is he's you know he did vary a little bit from the final, but it's not dramatic other than you know some of the the body positioning that I think is probably just necessitated by the fact that a human being is in the final costume. Oh, yeah, yeah, you just have to, I mean, I, I just let go when I make it like that, but then it's like what Stuart had to do with Jabba, then you have to, you know, accommodate it to yeah. be a boot. One of the things that, that um, 
happened. You know, uh, we had to make a, a, a video to send to England mm-hmm. of, uh, of um, Joe Johnston called it Red Ball Jet mm-hmm. uh, after the tennis shoot. And, um, and so I, I, I built the costumes and um, there were, it was late in the day and um, uh, nobody was around so I had to get in the suit well I wanted to get in the suit and I, I wanted to break it mm-hmm. you know, and then adjust from there and so George had picked uh, Rick James Superfleet as the um, you know the, the music to you know, perform to mm-hmm. and so I was there doing you know my Max Rebo thing and uh, Jules comes in we had one car at that time and she came to pick me up and asked um, Patty Blaub the producer oh, you know where's Phil and she said he's in the costume and Jules says that's impossible you know the guy has no sense of rhythm and you know, he can't dance and then I took the suit off and it was like holy and you know it's it, it's like that's why you make a costume you know and it goes back to like the shamanic kind of, the kinds of things of the American Indians you you become this character and um, and so you can you know you can you know, uh, inhabit the mind of that character. Mm. And so, you know, then I, I could, you know, have rhythm, you know, and make the thing fun. And then I take it off and I turn back into myself. And you got two left feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, you know, Carol Spinney, uh, who played Big Bird, um, well, and and I my my I got my first start in the business. My first internship was on Sesame Street, um, and he would always say that uh, he couldn't dance either, but Big Bird could. Yeah, and so you know, there it is. <laughs> um, the Bib Fortuna concept maquette. You're sort of very pink and and. I, I feel like there's a little bit of Elephant Man in him. Well, that's what uh, George asked for. Ah. He, said he wanted something like the Elephant Man. Nice. Well, yeah, because it definitely has a bit of that that vibe. And, and you know, that's one that we've... Uh, I think we already did the signing with you for the plaques, and those will be coming out early next year, probably. Um, but it's 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 an interesting transition from that to the final. It's like he... He got a little nicer looking in the in the final. I mean, maybe it's just down to the actor. I think they did a, their adjustments that they made. I think were the right ones. Mm. You know, um, I think making him, you know, Caucasian color. Yeah, I, I think mine was like a, you know, blues and crazies in it or something like that. And then the addition of uh, those teeth and the eyes, I thought, were brilliant. Mm-hmm. And it, it was it, when that guy was on the set and would look at you. It was it was really creepy. It's so. it's a really effective makeup. 
Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and not easy to get, you know, like anybody who has, has ever done this stuff can tell you, you know, big long tubes and tails and uh, things like that are not easy. No, and who was the English sculptor? Was it Nick? Uh, it was Nick Dudman who did that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, he was really terrific. Yeah. Obviously, we did the Rancor puppet scale with you. Um, thank you. Um, and the the we've we've since gone and, and seen and scanned the little the maquette version too, and it it really kind of. I feel like that's another one kind of similar to Max. There's there's not a, a lot of air between the concept and the final on that Rancor. Like, you really dialed that thing in at the maquette scale. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I generally start with a concept, you know, mm -hmm. um, that's very vague and abstract, like the Howard the Duck Monster. You know, I, I wanted to make something that was like uh, something you wouldn't want to find in your toilet. <laughs> and, um, and then Rancor was uh, a cross between a bear and a potato. Right. And, and so George, you know, uh, he was very adamant. He wanted to make, as he called it, the best Godzilla suit uh, ever. And mm. so we attempted to do that, but the design was not, you know, it was really for a stop motion puppet, but we had run out of time because we had spent so much time trying to make this thing mm -hmm. as a, a suit. And, um, you know, at, at that point, um, uh, you know, George said, oh, to do whatever you want to do. And, um, and so, yeah, it was designed as a stop mode puppet, but we had eaten up so much time that Dennis uh, came up with a, you know, idea uh, to shoot as a high speed puppet, which was a, you know, very brilliant. Yeah, that uh, it's it was one of those things. I remember, you know, the first time I saw one of the behind the scenes shots, and. You know, you're their little 18 inch puppet, uh, like, you know, wiggling them around like Kermit the Frog. And I'm like, how did that happen? Like, that really blew my mind as a kid that that, that sense of scale came out of that thing. Um, the. Well, sorry, go ahead. Well, we, we would do. Um, sometimes we would do up to 60 takes. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, like, like you were saying earlier, you know, like some sculptors, you know, would, you know, come up with a design and then, you know, design half a dozen other things that look like the first design, only, you know, a bit different. Mm. And so it's kind of that way with uh, doing that kind of performance is number one, at high speed, you don't know what you're going to get. Right. Um, and so it was the antithesis of stop motion, where you just had to, you know, if you're shooting, you know, 90 frames a second, you know, you just have to go bang, 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 bang. <laughs> and you're not quite sure if you're hitting your marks, you know, you just, you know, and so you do it over and over again. But what happens as you, as you start doing that many takes, you know, there's not much you can do. And so you really resort to, you know, muscle memory. 
And it's all happening so fast that you just hope you'll catch lightning in the bottle. So we'd show up in Bailey's, and uh, George finally got wise to us. And, you know, we were, you know, running the stuff, and I got up to 10, 20 takes, and he uh, said, how many takes are there? And it went like 60. He, he says, yeah, okay, just pick up, you know, pick out the, the, the five or six, you know, you like the most and send them over to Dwayne. You know, we'll choose them. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of a lot to dig through. And then, you know, not, this is not in any kind of, uh, this pre-digital era, it's not like you could have 60 little clips on a desktop and move them around or anything. Like, you've got to watch these in order and try and remember, oh, wait, was number seven any better than number 46? Uh, rewind, rewind. Yeah, 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 that was it. Man. Um, but that, that's, it was actually pretty easy. You know, well, no, it was actually like splitting hands. Yeah, you know, I was going to say. You know, like we went, you know, one where his slobber wasn't quite right. Mm. You know, the eye line was wrong or, you know, didn't look like he was walking. <laughs> you know, there was something, you know, there practical in this design where his legs were very short. Yeah. And I needed to do that because you know, I was operating ahead and I had a black velvet, you know, uh, club on that would cover up my forearm. I personally, I, uh, you know, I come at sculpting as mostly a mask making guy. So I'm used to lots of clay at a time and very big stuff. Um, you seem to be able to get really amazing detail on small scale. Is Do you have a preference between small and large scale sculpting? Yeah, the, yeah, small stuff is just concepts, you know? Mm. And I don't want to waste a lot of time, right. you know, doing stuff that's going to be rejected. Yeah. And then, in the case of bike or, you know, yeah, then it, it gets sculpted, you know? Yeah. And yeah, then you go in and the, the form is, you know, almost identical. You know, then you can really get into the weeds with all the other detail. Right. It's like you're looking at it in high def for the first time. Yeah, and that's one of the things I got away with. You know, uh, it was right on the borderline of what George didn't like, which was a face that mm. initially was very abstract, and you you know kind of go, "What the fuck?" <laughs> and, then you, and then it then it. Um, because well, he wanted, uh, he wanted, he always wanted to see the eyes, mm. and um, and so we went to great lengths to put in, you know, like fiber optic cables, red eyes, and it just looked like shit. And uh, so what I came up with was I got uh, super bright ball bearings, and then I got a black sharpie, and. Um, covered those up and popped them in mm. and um and so and then Dennis lit it such that the um the, the sharpie was very thin and you could see through to 
the metal, and so we that gave us little pinpoints of light, yeah. you know, and not these big white rolling around things. Right. Anyhow, and so uh, yeah, I, I love solutions like that. You know, it's a metal ball bearing and a sharpie, but the glint that that it gets, and there's so many moments in that scene where it just, like you said, it catches the light just the right way. Um, yeah, well, that was Dennis, and it was kind of tricky to get, you know, because it was a, a relatively small set, and, um, you know, to get all that stuff in there, you know, to, you know, a, a bounce card, mm. you know, because you didn't want to have a real light, but then you have to put the bounce card so it'll catch the light, and then a light coming from another direction that gets the bounce card, so it's like, got pretty tight and pretty warm in there. We were shooting shooting with five cakes. Oh, gosh. And, um, and uh, yeah, just to get the depth of field. Right. And, um, yeah, it got pretty warm in there. No joke. Was Jedi your first uh, head of department role at that point? Or at least well, at that scale? There, were, there was so much to do. And George trusted me. You know, I mean... Yeah, there was no head of a- animation, um, you know, when we were doing Empire. It was just right. John and me. Right. And then uh, George deputized me to be the, you know, creature shop guy because he trusted me, hmm. like like my designs. And I was, you know, told, you know, like Howard Koch, no, it wasn't Howard Koch. Howard, who's the producer on that? Kazanjian. Uh, Kazanjian. You know, why don't you hire, you know, Rick Baker, Rob Boteen, you know, because they, they, they know how to do this stuff. I'm more a miniature guy. And uh, George didn't want to do that. Mm. He, he liked my, you know, kind of out there designs. And, uh, you know... Um, and, you know, I felt that those guys would hit it on the notes rather than, you know, just make a big stew out of whatever you had. <laughs> and, you know, who knows what it was going to turn out like. Well, and I mean, I'm looking through, so I, you know, I had sent you a, a sort of PDF that was, because like I said, we've been going through and identifying these. When you say George liked your design, you're not joking, because I'm seeing, so some of these names will be, you know, weird, but we got Max Rebo, Bib Fortuna, Jabba the Hutt, Admiral Akbar, the Rancor, uh, the, uh, Ula the Dancer, Sai Snoodles, uh, Bubo, the road creature, Ephantman, Hermie Odal, Nikto, Amana Man, uh, just to name a few that all got accepted. And then there's a whole bunch of others as well. But, you know, when you say George liked your stuff, you're not kidding, because I don't think anybody comes close to the, the volume, <laughs> you know, as we've been identifying sculptors on the ones here. Well, he, would, he would do, uh, you know, he, he would ask, what is this guy? And um, uh, and he would always do riffs on you know what we said you know for mm. Akbar. It was it was based on a um, squid kind of a guy. Right. Yeah. I, I, I told him, oh, it's a calamari man. 
and so that's yeah they were like the whatever they were yeah they ran with it (laughs) and and then for salacious we're a mexican restaurant and uh we were drinking beer and whatnot you know uh just joking around you know trying to come up with a name sort of thing and we were getting ready to go and I had to tie up my tennis shoes and you know I was I must have been like three sheets to wet or something because it was like I, I couldn't I had trouble tying my tennis shoe and um and I was saying you know I, I can't I can't tie my um Sulacious, <laughs> and, and it was like everyone went. That's its name, Sulacious. <laughs> and um, and uh, so you know, George changed it into Salacious. Uh huh. Which we're actually we did our replica of that with uh, Tony McVeigh. And uh, they're in fact, while we're talking, they they just are starting on another batch of twelve of those. So this whole studio oh, wow. gets filled up with salacious every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that was a, a great thing that you know Tony came up with. You know, yeah, and it is fascinating because it's it's such a popular character. And, you know, as we're going through all the maquettes and the concept stuff, there's just nothing there because it just kind of came about along the way. Well, it was something, you know, in retrospect, it was one of the later characters that George said, uh, you know, Java needs a little friend. Uh um, I was kind of overwhelmed with just getting all the other stuff done. So Tony just took it and ran with it. The first thing he did, uh, George went for the one more I will ask about uh, is the Ewok, because there is, uh, at the archives, a really cool kind of caveman-looking Ewok uh, that was one of your sculpts. Um, can you can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, well, in the script, they were supposed to be cannibals. <laughs> and, and we weren't all... I mean, it was just kind of a throwaway line, the the movie hmm. but um you know we didn't like the teddy bears <laughs> you know none of us did you know george you know i guess with this marketing prowess and you know like you know want to interject cute things but i didn't see it as cute you know i i, I did see it as a cannibal yeah and like kind of a variation on like a photo human or Neanderthal or, yeah. you know, and, you know, I, I like that design. I think it would have been a lot more cool. It's, uh, yeah, it's a cool look. I mean, it's, it is funny. You just, even in, as the teddy bears, you have to like remind people. It's like, well, you know, they were going to cook Harrison Ford there. Like they they were going to eat him. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, uh, that's, these are, these are dangerous little bears. Um, yeah, but they didn't. They didn't look like they had the capability. Yeah. They, they exuded charm mm. being threatening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, yours definitely had a little more threat to it for sure. Any of the designs in that, you know, you're, you're now this is this is forty years later, basically. 
to, to making all of those maquettes. I think there were 80 or so different designs made for these creatures. It seems like at least half of those actually even got made. Um, are there any that just jump out at you all this time later and that still resonate that are just like, oh man, we nailed that one? Well, I wasn't happy with a lot of them, you know, in terms of, you know, I, I wasn't really 100% thinking about how some of them would go together. Mm-hmm. And so there was one yellow thing, you know, Banana Man. Uh-huh. That was like, you know, the idea was good, but, um, um, yeah, it just... It, yeah, it was very hard to manipulate on that stage. I was going to say, yeah, there's not much you can do with a, man, a banana man, banana man there. You know, he's just, he's got to basically stand against a wall and that's it, right? There's yeah, pretty, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there were some of those things that, you know, I didn't have any idea how to articulate them. But then, you know, things like Max Rebo, you know, I, I, you know, I, I did, so... Yeah. Well, I I think we've certainly covered a lot of ground. I thank you for all your time today. You can find Phil on social media. I'll have links in the description of the video, but don't miss the Mad Dreams and Monsters video, Mad Dreams and Monsters book, Mad God, which should be out in you know relatively soon uh, if you're listening to this, uh, which you know you'll be able to get, I assume, on on Blu-ray and DVD and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it's on Shutter. Yeah, and I think they offer the first 30 days free, or at least they, they were. Right. So That's hard to beat. Yeah, if you don't want a horror collection, but I'm sure most of the people that are would be driven to this would be horror fans. Yeah. And the Shutter originals are, are for the most part, really good. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the good ones are, are, you know, foreign films. Um, and they are generally really intelligent and really creepy. And, um, you know, we just can't make horror films like that in this country. You know, we, we just, you know, there's one way. Right. And that's the highway. <laughs> and, uh, and, and these are, these are, you know, really imaginative and kind of all over the map. Yeah, it's, it, things have become a bit formulaic in the horror department over in the States, it seems. Exactly. Uh, well, if if folks go up and, and uh, enjoy Shutter, you can uh, see Mad God there. I believe I saw something that in early December it's coming out on some kind of physical media. I know there's a lot of folks that still like to have that, and there's uh, there's that. And um, But, uh, Phil, thank you once again. Oh, wait, 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 hold, hold it there. Let, let's... Let's wrap up with a story. Sure. Um, a, few, a few months back, I get this letter, and it was from an English guy who has a 12-year-old daughter, Evelyn, that has a mental capacity of a 2-year-old, and she's highly autistic, and she, um, you know, didn't like to be touched. You know, she would only eat for like 10 seconds at a, at a time. And she's like bouncing all over the place. Mm. And uh, the dad happened to have 
Mad God on, you know, to shut her. And for the first time in her life, she curled up and cuddled with him. Oh, my. And Mad God was this, somehow I think that whatever level of, I'm like functionally autistic, you know, and so I'm very much on the lower end of the spectrum and, you know, to the point where it's really undetectable. But um, I think there was some wavelength there that that connected. So uh, when she was in uh, like another room for eating, the sound would be on. And so she would eat. And then uh, they were using it for, you know, they had a therapy session. There were like little different colored cubes, you know, they were you know, hoping that she could match. Mm-hmm. And she previously couldn't, but when the score to Mad God was on, she could, you know, put the blue blocks together and the red blocks together and, and so on. So it's wow. something. Very strange, mysterious. The grandparents, um, <laughs> the poor family, have to watch Mad God. I was just gonna, yeah, over again. Yeah, because the uh, you know, mom and dad and the grandparents, you know, it's the only the first first time in twelve years she could cuddle with. Oh my goodness, that's absolutely incredible. And I, I do, you know, it is funny because I just think about. Um, you know, I, I, my nieces and nephews and how many times uh, their parents had to watch, you know, Frozen or whatever Pixar movie or Minions movie they were into. And I'm just picturing that being Mad God now over and over yeah. again. She didn't, she could care less about those. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a wavelength, all right. Well, I, I thank you for that. I appreciate uh, all of your time today and all the time of everybody who has been listening. So there we go. Uh, We hope you guys enjoyed that chat. Uh, Once again, apologies for any of the audio quality there, but uh, certainly uh, hope it was worth a listen to you. Uh, If you are interested in any of the stuff we've been talking about, things like the Max Rebo maquette, the Weekway over there, this Tauntaun, uh, or the new brand new Tauntaun bus that are behind me, uh, go to regalrobot.com slash Star Wars. You'll find all that stuff. And if you happen to be on the Regal Robot website, I would just say, uh, if you like the sort of stuff we were talking about, you like the sort of stuff that we make, uh, join our email newsletter. We don't send out a lot of email, but anytime we do something new, we always tell folks there. And that's the way to be in the in the no crowd and to get uh, get first shot at all of this stuff. So, once again, thank you so much. Find us on social media. We're at Regal Robot everywhere. And uh, be sure to like and subscribe, as the kids say. Thanks. Take care.